By the time you hear this podcast, you'll be TKO'd by love. By the time you hear this podcast, I'm Greg. I'm Ben. And it's the quiet storm. <laughs> I don't have the sound effect. Do you do you remember that sketch with um Tim? Is it Tim Curry? Tim Meadows? Tim Meadows. Yeah, yeah. he was like the quiet storm. He just kept hitting the thunder. <laughs> Man, this is the quintessential quiet storm song, though. Yeah. Uh, definitely, definitely a, a standard of yeah. that of that format. But a welcome to the podcast. This is episode one fifty. Hey, um, significance of that you figured out amongst yourselves. But thank you, everyone who has listened so far and is watching on Twitch or will watch on Twitch as long as it's up on the page. <laughs> <laughs> um, as we. We're trying to make our way to affiliate or partner or whatever lets uh lets us keep um the videos up on Twitch. <laughs> um so thank you. And uh as we go through this podcast journey, you are joining the uh the Chromeo of podcasting. We'll give you bona fide loving. And fancy footwork. Oh yeah. <laughs> so um you can see on the screen where you can follow us. You can uh, subscribe to the podcast, share it, um, give us ratings, give us a five star rating, if mm-hmm. you will. If you give us, as a roll of paper towels falls <laughs> to the floor, <laughs> if you give us less than five stars, um, we are inclined to assume that you are a what? A hater. Yes. Yes. Falling hater. like some uh, some paper towels to the floor. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, leave us a rating and good stuff and and stuff. And actually, I think uh, the song I just played just went out live from our secret, super secret location, like the other way live. Oh, <laughs> hey oh. Uh, well, enjoy. <laughs> I hope you all enjoyed that for a second. <laughs> so um, let's get into some music news, man. Um, so uh, Britney Spears has been in the news a lot lately. Uh, some some interesting things have been uh, going on. Um, we, I think we we touched on it briefly with our episode about the um, about Britney Spears' first album, 
Yeah, um, when we talked about um, Baby One More Time. Yeah. So in this, uh, the, what's come up uh, here is that um, uh, her father, I believe, controls her conservatorship, basically controls her money and what she can do. Um, so uh, what I wanted to do here is, if I can pull it up, is play a clip here from this is from NBC News about the about what's going on and what kind of you know this there's a spinoff podcast that I'm still trying to iron the kinks on um, and but this would definitely be a subject to come up but we may in down the line do an episode about the documentary from Britney Spears but here's the clip from NBC News. After Britney Spears had her say in court, lashing out at her conservatorship and her father's role in it, telling the court, all I want is to own my money and for this to end. Conservatorship has got to go. Tonight, a nation captivated by the pop icon's predicament. Twitter alone counting for more than a million messages within 24 hours, roughly half of them with the hashtag Free Britney, including Thank celebrities. People. Fight on, Britney. We're with you. Her ex-boyfriend, Justin Timberlake, whose past treatment of the superstar is controversial, tweeting, no one should ever be held against their will. Others scrutinizing every detail of Britney's statement, including when Britney described working seven days a week with no days off and losing control of her possessions, including her credit card, cash, phone and passport, saying staff watched me change every day naked. I had no privacy door for my room. This is a human trafficking issue and should be treated as such. While Britney's testimony has clearly struck a chord with the country, legal experts point out there is still much we do not know about her case. Meanwhile, her lawyers have yet to petition the court to end her conservatorship. So that's the end of the clip there. Um, so it's like she has no control over her life. Yeah. Uh, it's been going I mean, on for a while. It, I, I, I want to, I guess it, we might, it might get more in depth in the documentary, but how does that end up happening uh, where she doesn't have control <clears throat> over her everyday life? Yeah. I mean, it started back in 2008 um, when she was, uh, she was placed under psychiatric hold. Oh, was this after she shaved her head? I believe so. Um because I mean, so that was around the time I think Blackout was coming out or had just come out, mm -hmm. and there was a there was just concern that there was something wrong with her. Because I mean, I don't know if anyone remembers, but the um, the performance at the VMAs with the famous look of of Fifty Cent looking just like he'd seen a ghost, yeah, just shocked. I believe that's when it all started happening, and ever since then she's been like, and I don't think a lot of people knew that it was going on for the longest. I think it really came to light maybe about four years ago or so that this was going on. Um, and now it's led to her having to, like, she can't really, like, she, I know she canceled her residency in um, Las Vegas. In Las Vegas. I can't think of what else. I mean, we'd have to do some more research on it. But, um, I mean, while she was under it, so here's you know, some additional information. While under it, she did release Circus in 2008, Femme Fatale in 2011. Um so she was still working, but she just doesn't really have control over, as as we've kind of just heard, her life. Um, and it's rubbing a lot of people the wrong way, clearly. Yeah, because, I mean, if it's limited on what she can do as far as working 
and it limits what she does in her private life. If, if, you know, there's a staff that has to watch her change clothes, like mm-hmm. for what, what, what are we, what are we checking for? Yeah. Or are you waiting for there to be some kind of, uh, another psychotic break? Are they considering yeah. what happened a psychotic break? Um, and or to a lesser extent, you know, uh, a nervous breakdown. Maybe yeah. it was exhaustion. But, you know, that's something that you, we definitely have to do more research on. But mm-hmm. to not have control of own your of your life, you know, um, there's probably a limit on her even raising her kids. Yeah. And I mean, and, and I mean, she does not. I, I believe she does not have custody of the two kids. She had with Ke- wow. Kevin Federline. Because um, initially some reading here initially was supposed to be temporary. Um, but was made permanent later that year. Um, her sister, Jamie Lynn Spears, acted as the conservator of Spears' personal affairs as well as co-conservator of her finances along Andrew Wallet, who held the position in 2000, starting in 2009. Um, I, I do think this would be a good episode to talk about, uh, or a good subject to talk about in an episode. Um, I mean, there's plenty of information out there, and now hearing from you that there's a documentary it's very interesting. I mean, I, I I can understand maybe the concern because I think everyone was rightfully kind of concerned when all of those things were happening back in 2007, 2008. I remember, as a matter of fact, back in 2007, shout out to Matt, friend of the show, um, we had to do our um, our mock news story. It was one of the stories I covered, actually, <laughs> was about her cutting her hair because that was around the time that um, that guy who I swear would be TikTok famous now had to leave Britney alone video. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I, Chris, he'd, Chris something. Yeah, he'd he'd be huge now, but um, yeah, it's been it's I, I it seems like that's when it started. Like the fears around that turned into this, turned into what has essentially been a decade long battle, and doesn't seem like there's any end in sight. I mean, she's essentially in the public begging for freedom. <laughs> I don't think there's any end in sight. Yeah, to this. I mean, she's getting support. You know, yeah. um, like the the news clip said, the um, the the people who were you know ex, uh, expressing their support, Justin Timberlake. I think there, I saw Mariah Carey and Vera Wang and Khloe mm-hmm. Kardashian. Um, mm-hmm. You know, all the all the uh, the usual suspects, all the, <laughs> if you will. But, you know, there's a lot of support for her, and there was a crowd outside of the courthouse mm-hmm. um, because they, she, this was part of a testimony for a hearing mm. to um, end the conservatorship. Um, I don't, I like I said, want to get more details, but compared she compared life under the conservatorship to sex trafficking. Mm. I'd want to look more into that. That's a little concerning. I mean, what are they making? Aside from, I mean, I imagine it's very uncomfortable to have to, you know, change in front of someone but i wonder what else might be going on there if she's comparing it to that yeah so it's a um it's uh and i wonder too what's making a judge because i mean a judge has to keep upholding this what is there that we don't know that could be going on behind the scenes that maybe isn't being told isn't being said um i mean I'm not about to get all Huey Freeman up in here, but I mean, I'm not going to pretend that our justice system is perfect. And, and we know it's not, um, especially for black people. But really, it's, it's screwed over a lot of people. Let's just be honest. So I'm not going to sit here and pretend that it can't screw over Britney Spears. Yeah. So I'd be curious to know what's making them do that, you know. 
So uh, we definitely we're going to get more in depth on that uh, in a future episode uh, to kind of get the more details on what makes conservatorship, what what kind of pushed it in that direction. I mean, we have some ideas, but, you know, just to see like when how did it get to a point where, you know, you can no you no longer have control over your everyday life. Yeah. And. How do you get out from under that? Yeah, I don't think I could deal with that. <laughs> yeah. uh, so here's another story. Um, more, A little more bad news here, but um, hopefully things will look up. Mm-hmm. This is from um, People Magazine. Travis Barker is sending love to his friend and Blink-182 bandmate Mark Hoppus, who revealed Wednesday that he's been diagnosed with cancer. Barker posted a throwback photo to his Instagram story on Wednesday night, in which he's giving the singer a hug and kiss as Hoppus jokingly grimaces at the camera. Barker also told E! News, quote, I will be with him every step of the way, on stage and off, and can't wait for us to play together again soon. Their former bandmate Tom DeLong shared well wishes of his own, tweeting in part, he is strong and a superhuman who is pushing through this difficult obstacle with a wide open heart. Hoppus revealed on social media Wednesday that he's been undergoing chemotherapy for the past three months. He has not disclosed further details about his diagnosis, but said in part, it sucks and I'm scared. And at the same time, I'm blessed with incredible doctors and family and friends to get me through this. He added that he has months of treatment ahead, but is trying to remain hopeful and positive. In a photo posted to his Instagram story Wednesday, Hoppus appeared to be at a doctor's office, seated with an IV. He captioned the photo, yes, hello, one cancer treatment, please. So, uh, yeah, um, Mark Hoppus from Blink-182, been diagnosed with cancer, undergoing treatment. Um, This is news that came out today. Yeah. So. um, That's wild. I mean, that's. That's one of those things where one of the biggest acts of our generation, <laughs> you know, that would be, you know, you know, our parents had their artists. My sister, who is a Gen Xer, had their artists. And for millennials, you know, when Dude Ranch, not so much, but when Enema of the State dropped. <laughs> yeah. And they became. That was when they came superstars. Yeah. Like they, they become as big as. You know, well, not quite as big as the Backstreet Boys, but in, as far as like you know, you see them on TV. They're on TRL. That, that they're, t- the TRL era. Yeah, era up there. Like that would be for you know, this has to be devastating for some people who grew up on this music and still, you know, I know it gets joked about a lot. Like, oh, you know, a 2000s teen in the mall, and you're like walking <laughs> around, you know, and you're Abercrombie and Fitch, you know, blasting like you know, first date by <laughs> Blink 182. But yeah, this is. This is pretty heavy, you know, in terms yeah. of of this generation's stars. Like, I'm trying to think of, you know, like stars from that generation who were super mega huge who've gone through something like this. I mean, Rich Cronin from LFO died yeah. of cancer. But LFO, while popular, was not – they weren't this big. Right. You know, to where, you know, you it's being covered on people and – is you know it, this would be a, a a big like TV special deal if something happened to him, which I hope it doesn't. But like it's just kind of one of those things. Like damn, like it's that's our that's one of our generation's heroes in terms of music. Yeah. So um, uh, 
again, well wishes to to him, and hopefully, um, hopefully he gets through it. Yeah, you know, um, I'm I'm with Travis Barker. I, I would like to see them uh, see them play again. Yeah. Hopefully, not the Fire Festival, but <laughs> as they were scheduled to play. But I uh, thought that Tom uh, had joined back with joined back up with them, but I guess not. Yeah, it I says think the uh, Skilba Sikba or whatever. What's the what? What was his other band? I know he had Boxcar Racer, something which Travis astronauts. Barker was in with them, and then um, Angels and Airwaves. I Angels think. and Airwaves, yeah. yeah, which sounded like uh, just like Blink One Eighty Two with a ton of delay. <laughs> like if Blink One Eighty Two and The Edge got together and made an album, that's what it sounded like to me. But I mean. I mean, no offense to Tom, he's kind of limited as a musician, so there's only so much he can do. That's not an insult. I mean, the guy is successful, clearly, but yeah. All right, so before we get to um, our uh, next story here, let's go to the charts. So uh, it was number one last week, and it's number one again this week on the Hot 100, Butter by BTS. Bruh. That song. Is it I, a good song? I yeah. I I went on a, a journey this weekend with my wife and just turned on. Um, I do it every now and then, kind of like Rick Beato. I just listen to the top songs in the country just to see what I'm missing. And uh, <laughs> butter and butter ended up. I, I heard a lot of these songs. I, I started to like a lot of them. Um, yeah, we're we're in good hands. I think we're in good hands. Plus, I follow the the one of the co-writers of this song and. She has been so happy to have her first number one hit. It's actually very fun to watch. She's really proud, and I'm happy for her. All right. Uh, number two, Good For You by Olivia Rodrigo. Officially two hits. So have you have you heard this one yet? I have not. It's getting compared to Misery Business by Paramore. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, and apparently rock fans are mad. Of course they Finn are. Finn McKinty told them to shut up and just be happy that a <laughs> rock song is charting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, would you rather be that or the Trap remix? Exactly. <laughs> uh, number three, Levitating, Dua Lipa featuring DaBaby. Number four, Kiss Me More, Doja Cat featuring SZA. Number five, Peaches, Justin Bieber featuring <laughs> Daniel Caesar and Giveon. Number six, Leave the Door Open, Silk Sonic, it's Bruno Mars and Anderson Pack. Number seven, Save Your Tears, The Weeknd and Ariana Grande. Number eight, Astronaut in the Ocean by Masked Wolf. Number nine, Montero, Call Me By Your Name by Lil Nas X. And number 10, Deja Vu by Olivia Rodrigo. So three hits. Yeah. It's, it's, she's she's blowing up. It's it's interesting to see because I think a lot of people thought she was going to be a one-hit wonder. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's turning out, I guess, to be a solid album. I haven't really liked much off of it other than Driver's License, but, I mean, it's it's selling. Yeah. So let's look at the mm-hmm. Billboard 200. These are the albums. Number one, debuting at number one, Hall of Fame by mm-hmm. Polo G. Didn't he just come out with an album? I feel like he just did. I, I, <laughs> I've, yeah, I think so. Might have been a collab album, but I, I could have swore I heard his name on this chart. Uh, number two, debuting at number two, Culture Three. I, I feel like we have to give them an Atlanta Hawks name since Quavo is basically in the locker room. Like, yeah. is he is he our Drake? Is, is, I, I think so. He he's the Drake of Atlanta. Oh, great. All right. Hey, I mean, they they let him in. You got Bogdan Bogdanovich saying they just need a little bit of straightening on his <laughs> Instagram. So, <laughs> man. Um, 
I saw their video for Avalanche, which uh, samples Papa was a Rolling Stone. Yeah. And in the video, they're they're dressed like I always call it like the Reservoir Dogs look, just the the black <laughs> the suits. black suit, and they got a band behind them. Even though, okay, it's the sample, all right. Mm-hmm. But and they didn't have it like um, like a documentary, like they're talking about you know what the album is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it is truly it's a music video, but it is truly a promo for the album. Uh, I gotta see this. <laughs> I mean, it's not it's nothing crazy. It's mm-hmm. really like. It, they it's not it's not really that crazy the the video mm-hmm. because it's just them um performing the song in a mm-hmm. studio mm-hmm. and then they they cut away to them talking about the album oh in the midst it is of the literally song. a okay yeah I got it's you. a it's a promo yeah um number three sour by olivia rodrigo number four the voice of the heroes little baby and little dirk number five still hanging around dangerous the double album by the redeemable Morgan Wallen. The number six, Taste of Love, the 10th mini album EP by Twice. I am not familiar with this. Nor am I. Um, is Twice? is K-pop. I, I, it looked like it. <laughs> like a big oh, K-pop group. What is up like with these? Group. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Like, yeah. Nine people. Jeez. They, they make it work. Um, yeah, I guess so. Number seven, Inside the Songs by Bo Burnham. If you've seen, he has a Netflix special called Inside. Have you seen it? I have not seen it, but I've heard. I've heard, warped. <laughs> I, I've, heard uh, I've heard a lot of good things, but it's. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's definitely an album made in quarantine. Number eight. Jordy by Maroon 5, debuting at number eight. What? Um, yeah, so they got a new album. I feel like we need to do an over-under on how many uh, rappers are on this <laughs> album. I'm, I'm going to look right now. What, what do you... Well, I'm, I'm pulling... Oh, I was going to say, I just pulled it up. Okay, I'm going to say... I'm going to say... Uh, okay, well, you set set the number. Set the number, and I'll guess. Okay, over... I'm bad at setting over unders. I probably shouldn't look this up. Oh. Um. How do I set an over under again? <laughs> okay, you you say the number, and I'll guess if it's over that oh, okay, or under okay. that. Okay. Uh, four. Four. Mm-hmm. Over under. I really want to say over. Uh, yeah, I'm going to go with over. Oh, yeah, over. Yeah. <laughs> so Megan Thee Stallion okay. is on the song called Beautiful Mistakes. I know he's a producer, but he raps too. Black Bear is on Echo. Okay. Um, I don't, is Bantu a rapper? Bantu? I think that's a, I think that's a producer. Um, Juice World. Um, not, he, they've got one song. It's a remix, but it's got two rappers on it, Nipsey Hussle and YG, so they're going with the dead rappers. Um, and then they've got on their deluxe, they've got a guy named um, Annual AA and Taney. Okay. Um, and then Bantu, they got a song with, with Jason Derulo, for good measure. Bantu does, like, kind of hip-hop and Afro beats mm-hmm. in the vein of 
maybe Malik Berry. Mm. Um, it's got awful reviews. Juice there, I think I feel like there are like three or four albums of people like new albums that mm-hmm. they did a song with Juice World. Like I think Migos did a song with Juice has a song with Juice World. On like their they're Tupac in them essentially. Yeah. Yeah. This this. Wow. I mean, they're like it's Metacritic has compiled all the all the um the reviews and it's at a forty five out of a hundred rating. Like it is bad. I don't see anything over three stars. They're 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 a long way away from songs about Jane. And this person has them at any decent music has them at three point eight out of ten. Like it's not people are just but I mean I don't care. I guess they don't care, you know? No. Sleep with a bundle of cash. Yep. Adam and the, and the Levines. <laughs> Uh, number nine, "Against This Pain" by Moneybag Yo, and number ten, "The Off Season" by J Cole. Let's look at the artist one hundred. Number one, Olivia Rodrigo. <laughs> so she's uh, having a good run right now. Number two, Polo G. Number three, unranked last week, but number three this week, they made they put out new music. Migos. Number five. BTS number excuse me number four BTS number five Lil Baby number six Ariana Grande number seven Luke Combs number eight Lil Durk number nine they were unranked last week but they put out an album twice and number ten The Weeknd so um, let's get to our last story here and uh, we got some sound it's been eight years since your last Behind the Music era. I really hope I've changed a lot since the last time we did this documentary. I haven't even done all the things that I've dreamt of. When I hear the music, it's an addiction for me. I wanted to forget about how painful it is to be scared. Oh my God! It was going somewhere that you couldn't have foreseen. I think you can judge success by numbers. You judge it by the experience. That was the most painful betrayal. I spent months thinking, I can't live like this. Everything has a cost. And we started to grow apart. The cracks were starting to appear. You're talking about life and death at this point. Buckle up. You about to go on a roller coaster ride you are not ready for. Applause, applause, applause. That's the story. And the best is yet to come. So that is the reboot trailer for Behind the Music, which will actually be produced by MTV. Uh, previously uh, previously produced by VH1, or at least airing, aired on VH1. So it will... Uh, it will be on MTV this time and on Paramount Plus. So we're probably going to hear from artists that don't need to get one of these yet if it's on MTV. Well, some of these artists have had one already. So you look forward to one from Ricky Martin. I know they had one. Duran Duran had one. LL Cool J had one. I believe Jennifer Lopez had one. I don't think Busta Rhymes had one. Uh, Fat Joe, he had, he didn't have one. Huey Lewis, I think they did. I think Huey Lewis in the News had one. Brett Michaels, I know he had one. And New Kids on the Block, I think they had one too. So that's just some of them. Mm. Um, 
I'm so, curious to see. Yeah, I just, I don't know. This was something that was, it was part of my childhood. Oh, yeah. I loved Behind the Music. Um, you know, the and it, when it first came out, it it was uh, it was huge. Yeah. Uh, I think the first episode was about Millie Vanilli. Mm-hmm. And the second episode was about MC Hammer. I thought that, I was like, is that the Leif Garrett one? That was one of the early ones. Leif Garrett. They had one on Leif Garrett. Yeah. Um, they had one on Jim Croce. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it got so big. They Motley Crue essentially made a parody episode of The Simpsons. Yeah. Behind the laughter, and parodied the style. Had the guy who did the you know the voiceover and everything. It was, yeah. I mean, that show was everywhere. Yeah. This is. Um, you know, I I don't know if if people look at like wanting to know about um, artists' lives like that anymore, and like in that format yeah. at least. Well, I because mean, because there were some things like like well, we did the episode about Rebel Yell, mm-hmm. and I watched behind the music about Billy Idol. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of stuff left out. Yeah, a it's, lot. It's, it was <laughs> it was definitely sanitized because you probably had managers and whatnot and probably artists themselves and like yeah we don't want that in there <laughs> like don't talk about that america's not ready for that <laughs> and, it, and it got a lot i think by that time it was getting formulaic that okay here's this person this is how they got famous and then this tragedy happens mm-hmm. and the always tragedy was the, right around the, the same corner. the same point of the episode yeah. coming up next the the accident the overdose yeah. the divorce <laughs> And that's when I thought I'd never love again. It's like coming and up next. It was funny. They did one on Weird Al, right? Which was brilliant. That was a great episode. <laughs> like, there's still like tragedy yeah. with him. So they're like, so after like one album, it didn't sell as well as the previous one. He's like, and then, and then I had to get the medium sized jacuzzi. <laughs> so I, that's why I love Red Al. He just does not take himself too serious. He's, he's brilliant. So yeah, I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to it. But I think, you know, you know, especially related to the the topic we're going to discuss tonight, um, getting more in. You can't sum up these careers in 40 minutes. And so that's what makes me curious, because when Behind the Music was big, that was it in terms of music documentaries. Yeah. Like you had limited access to them. You didn't have social media. We didn't have Wikipedia, so we couldn't just go read about them. So if you wanted to know about, you know, your favorite artist, if you wanted to know about Metallica, you had to watch that, you know. Um, but now we've got so much access to information. And on top of that, music documentaries, documentaries in general are like, this is the heyday. Like, they're so well produced now because, yeah. you know, and not to quote Bill Simmons, but like, you know, one of the things he thinks that kind of helped it was the 30 for 30s, like you saw the high production value, you had actual, like what, Peter Berg, I think, did one. Like you've got real directors coming in and doing these, like real Hollywood directors. And like next thing you know, within the past 10 to 15 years, a huge boom in sports documentaries and health documentaries. You got like, you know, what the health, supersize me. And now we've got music documentaries that are like A+. plus. Not to mention... You've got your own bands, Knock, 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 Chicago, making documentaries to get themselves into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So can they find, can they occupy that space and still be relevant? Yeah, I think it's going to be I think it'll be difficult, yeah. um, you know, based on, on what you just said, 
you know, trying to pack in someone's life in 40 minutes, you're not going to go in. We, if we, if we look at it with 2021 eyes, yeah. look at the old episodes, you know, they, like I said, heavily sanitized, yeah. a lot of stuff's left out, and it was very formulaic by mm-hmm. the end, by the end of that initial run. And, you know, you don't, it, you kind of look back and like, wow, we didn't really learn anything about no. you. But, you know, with, like I said, with the documentaries that have come out with people on social media, there are some things that, I mean, it'll have to be like in depth, unknown things, and yeah. that's all you focus on for 40 minutes. Yeah. Otherwise, we don't care. I, I mean, we, we know J Lo started on a living color. Yeah. I'll be very curious um, to see because, I, like, so to speak to the part about how you said it got formulaic, another thing that you started to notice is um, artists that had not been around for a while that were promoting an album would make one. Yeah. And by the end of it, to turn it into a feel good story. And then they came out with Crush, produced by Max Martin. And Bon Jovi's doing just fine. Like, <laughs> and then they're like, yeah, you know, we got in the studio for the first time ever. Richie broke back out the talk box. And, you know, we got It's My Life. And there's a guy jumping off a bridge onto a truck. It's great, man. Like, it. that's when it started to feel like very like, okay, you're just, it turned into what AMAs on Reddit are now. It's like someone's coming to push something. Yeah. Like, it doesn't. it didn't feel genuine. Those first few episodes... Milla Vanilli one coming back. Like, that was a no. sad ending. Yeah. The Leif Garrett one, sad ending. <laughs> Metallica was not a sad ending. Like, it was like, oh, yeah, S&M comes out. It, like, yeah, it few, was then, like, then the months. happy ending started coming. Uh, even the Billy Idol one had a happy yeah. ending. Yeah. Because, like, he reunited with his songwriter, with, like, the, the guy who was his guitarist and yeah. co-songwriter. Oh, now we're going to so. do a, a Unplugged. <laughs> like, like, these aren't, this isn't, you know... It is. It just turned into that, and then you started having them do artists who like you're still active. Yeah, like you haven't. There's one on a, Pink. Like yeah, Pink had made one album. Like you haven't had a <laughs> breakdown yet. <laughs> you didn't like you didn't commit suicide because you got discovered. <laughs> there was no, there was one on Ludacris. Oh God, I didn't know that. He's for real. There's one on Ludacris. There's, there was one on Ludacris, and it was what was the um, back for the first time. It was the one after that. Was it Word of Mouth? Yeah, I think so. It was like when that when that album was was they were big. running out of people that were willing to do it. They were running out. <laughs> it was on his second album. <laughs> they came to they probably went to like some other artists and they're like, nah, we're no thanks. <laughs> like so, you can't come in. Like, is it did they do one on Guns N' Roses? I don't think so. That's what or maybe I, maybe they tried. Uh, oh yeah, there's it says there's one. Oh, there is one. Okay, I don't, I don't remember it. Oh, I remember there was one. Oh, on that the, just who, who appeared. So they could have talked about them in the episode with Metallica where the big riot in Montreal happened because uh, yeah, they yeah, refused to go yeah. on stage. <laughs> yeah. That that was that was oh, the one. Oh man. I remember they did one on Dr. Dre. And I, I feel like they out. focused half the episode. They talked about the D Barnes incident for like five seconds. Probably because that's all they could get. And then like half of it was spent on um his brother dying mm. in the fight. Mm. Uh, that was like half of it. <laughs> so, like, it, I mean, it it was cool to start off with. Yeah. Like we said, but by the end, well, but I guess, would you rather see a reboot of Behind the Music or of Bands Reunited? Yeah, uh, Behind the Music, yeah. Okay. I, will, I will say this, though. <laughs> I think what they should do 
are um, they should make it like unsung, where you do artists that aren't big enough to do their own. Yeah, and kind of tell their story because yeah. I that's the that's what I can give credit to unsung for yeah. is that we know these artists for a couple of songs here and there. And they get a whole documentary. And they, and they get a whole documentary. You can get more in depth and there'll be stuff you didn't know. Yeah. And you can fill 40 minutes to an hour with that because, you know, they don't have that ton of history, you know? Yeah. I mean, like, I know they're kind of considered one hit wonders, but like, why not do it behind the music on nine days? Yeah. Why not do one on third eye blind? You could fit third eye blinds issues into like an hour that'd be it'd be interesting or i'm trying to think of someone else like who is like there's there's all those artists there's like oh yeah they had like maybe two or three hit songs they had some turmoil do an episode on them and like you know it, it'd be very interesting do one on sugar ray and oh, that'd get be to hear funny. all the other members talk because that guy apparently <laughs> is a like a d-bag like he apparently now is just like He's an asshole, like just grade A, like nobody. Likes he's him. almost sixty, and he still has the same hair. He looks like he's gotten a lot of surgery on his face. Yeah, like he a lot of plastic surgery. He probably would say he hasn't, but like you don't. You're clearly you're trying to look twenty five. Like still, you're fifty five, and he just and he's just an <laughs> asshole on social media. Apparently, then as he tried to like fight some kid once. Have you ever seen that video? Yeah, the kid I calls saw, him sugar. Uh, calls him sugar, sugar gay. gay. He tries saw, to fight him. Um, like, no. I saw uh, <laughs> anybody on you who uh, who's into YouTube follow uh, Cody Co and Noel Miller. They kind of broke down the video, <laughs> <laughs> like like who took the L? Was it the kid or was it Mark McGrath? <laughs> and then on their podcast, they interviewed Mark McGrath. Oh God! <laughs> and they talked about the incident. Like I would say that Mark McGrath took the L because it's like you're it's a teenager. It's essentially and not like an eighteen or seven. Like he had to be like fourteen years old. It's like, what do you gain from beating up a 14-year-old? And you're not going to beat him up. You're going to have your security guard do it for you. It's like, what do you gain? Like, oh, big man, like beating up on kids. But then at the same time, while he's like yelling at the kid, he's signing autographs. Yeah. He kissed the guy on the cheek. That'd be the weirdest thing <laughs> ever. Like, it was just really awkward. Was that worse? Or did you see the the um, the meltdown on stage of Greg Camp from um, Smash Mouth? No, I didn't see that one. Yeah, they're playing, they're vamping All Star, like the beginning, doom, doom, doom. And he's just, I guess somebody said something or threw something, and he's essentially like cursing the crowd out. <laughs> and it goes on. It's about a five minute video. He won't start the song until, <laughs> apparently, until they kick that person out. <laughs> he's just like cursing at them. And I think eventually they just start getting booed, but he's, as they're just doom, doom, doom. They just kept playing that in the background? Yeah, they just kept playing it. They kept vamping the intro. And it's just, I'm just like, dude, just sing. Just start. It's not that big of a deal. Just start singing. It is a big deal. It's a big deal. It was so, I was just like, Jesus Christ, he doesn't get out much. So mad. Uh, Just all this profanity, too. Doom, doom, doom. (laughs) It's truly comedy. So, oh uh, God! <laughs> <laughs> I gotta show you that later. <laughs> uh, so that'll do it for our music news. I don't know if I'll even watch this show. Um, I'll give it. I'll give it a shot. But I just. I mean, like hell, compared to what we were about to talk about today, can you beat that? Like that's that's your standard. Like you've got to beat. I mean, and like I can't even say this is the best music documentary I've ever watched. 
But can VH1 or MTV beat that? <laughs> like, can you have profanity on MTV? Can you, you know, <laughs> can you track down all these people, you know? Yeah, that's um, that's going to be, they have they have a tall task. But yeah. apparently they've already shot these episodes, so. Oh, They're they coming. They <laughs> we'll see. Um, so that'll do it for our music news. Ben, tell us about your earworm of the week. Um. I had the biggest crush on her in high school. I don't know what caused me to start listening to this. I think, you know what? I know what it is. I follow a chick on on TikTok because, yes, I'm on there. And she posts, she's, I guess, obsessed with 2000s, late 90s era stuff, like all the boy bands, all the all the girl bands, all the stuff like that. And not just that, but like movies, TV shows. So like she'll post videos from Jawbreaker, from mm. Drive Me Crazy, like all that stuff. And I follow her because it makes me feel good because I'm getting to that age now where, like, looking back on this type of stuff makes me feel good. So screw you. Um, (laughs) And this song, she posted this song because it was, like, I guess, like, number one or something at some point. And it just took me back. Um, And I just went and played the album. It's Mandy Moore. Oh, God, I loved her. Um, In my pocket. More than I, I loved her more than, like, Britney Spears and... Um, and Kristen Aguilera, and I know to some people like that's sacrosanct. Like you can't say that because she was she was clearly third, but I just liked her. Or was she fourth behind Jessica Simpson? Depends on who you ask. But I mean, it's it's kind of one of those things. It's like everyone knew Britney was one, Christina was two, and then it gets kind of murky. It's like, is it Jessica? Is it Mandy? Is it? Um, I know there's another chick in there who I can't think of, but you know, it's yeah. I I was a Mandy Moore fan. Pink? They tried. They tried. Um, they, yeah, she didn't want to be that. Lindsay Lohan? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> See, now, it's getting, now you're making it real murky. <laughs> Hillary Duff. Oh, God. Oh, I'm sorry. Haley Duff. Well, see, Hillary had, the, Hillary had the movie, man. She had the show. Then she had the movie. And then she, like, you know, she she's the blueprint. That'd be an interesting episode because she is essentially, she set that blueprint for everyone. Like, it's like, get a TV show. Yeah, and she's the get only one who movies. seemed to escape. Yeah, she's got a she's got a husband and she's got kids and she's like still acting like she yeah G- give her, her her flowers man. <laughs> All right, this is In My Pocket by Mandy Moore. We'll be right back.
All right, that is In My Pocket by Mandy Moore from her album, self-titled album. You know who's a co-writer on that song? Who? I feel like I should know. Emilio Estefan. Really? Huh. Nice. This was supposed to be her mature album, so. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. And I bought into that. I totally bought into it. <laughs> It had crush on it. I was like, that's yeah. every that's every teen idol, isn't it? <laughs> they have the mature song. Oh yeah, and it's it's hit or miss, mostly miss. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Mandy. Wherever you are, I don't know where you are. So um, on this episode, we started the song with uh, we started the episode with uh, the song "Love TKO," written by. Um, Cecil Womack and what was his wife's name? It was Womack and Womack. Because yeah, that sounds familiar. I know the first the first name that you said sounds familiar. I can't think of the second writer. Uh, Dexter oh. Wenzel. No, 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 no. He's a um, producer. Gip Noble. Gip no. Okay. <clears throat> uh, I think it was. Oh, it was written for David Oliver. I thought I thought it was written for um, Womack and Womack. They, I think they they did it late. Linda Womack, um, that is Sam Cooke's daughter, and uh, Bobby Womack's <clears throat> brother. Really? And uh, I want to find something we can reference to get into an episode about that, <laughs> because if you ask for people our age, ask your parents about Bobby Womack. And see what kind of reaction you get. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I'm going to say about that. But the song, as you said, written by Cecil Womack and Gibb Noble Jr., made famously by Teddy Pendergrass. And, uh, oh, I didn't mean to do that. Okay. Oh, well, well, I'm going to change this <clears throat> up in just a second. <laughs> but, um, We'll be talking about the documentary, If You Don't Know Me, uh, about Teddy Pendergrass, uh, produced by Showtime and BBC Films. Um, it's about an hour and 46 minutes. Mm-hmm. Not a ho- not too long. Yeah. Not like the last one. That was and, <laughs> two and which a half was hours. a little too long. Yeah, that <laughs> one. Um, <clears throat> so we'll be talking about that documentary. Uh, I thought that Teddy Pendergrass had a very interesting story that really hasn't been told in depth. Um, I will tell you this, and you've probably heard about it. You probably heard me reference it. Um, Tyrese mm-hmm. could not pull off a movie about Teddy Pendergrass. Do they want him in one? He's been <clears throat> like the guy to play him for so long. I think for so long that. There, he did an interview where he talked to Teddy Pendergrass about playing him, and he died in 2010. Jesus, it's been okay. I I don't know if I could see that. They'd have to put him in a bad wig, clearly. Yeah, and uh, and bad facial hair. Yeah, I couldn't see that happening. I, he I he, no, he can't pull it off. Mm-mm. And no movie shows, no no other performances have shown that he could pull it off. Let's see if there's any deep fakes of this. <laughs> Are you I, diving into Reddit? No, I'm just I'm just gonna see if there's any like if anyone has you know posted anything of it, like of maybe like this is what he might look like in it, you know. Though I'm not gonna lie, I 
kind of see it. Let me. Now, I can kind of see it. I can see it. I just don't but know if he, he can act? act. Yeah. No, he can't. Tyrese can't. Act. I mean, we've seen. We've got plenty of evidence to the contrary in, in all the Transformers movies and the Fast and Furious movies where he's basically just the dark-skinned dude that drops one-liners. Yeah. So. Um, or if, if he tried to play the, the, the hard-ass drill sergeant archetype uh, in the movie. <laughs> There's a movie called Annapolis with oh, he's him in and James Franco. I didn't know he was in Annapolis. Yeah. That's not that's that's not good. Either. Who thought that it'd be a good idea to have an, an experienced actor <laughs> start opposite of the guy from the Fast and the Furious? <laughs> like that doesn't make any sense. Like that's I don't know. Like I just feel like you'd instantly be able to tell like the first scene they're in together. Like yeah, they're no, he's clearly better than him. But that project's been in development for for teams. I thought there would have been like a leaked screen, uh, a leaked screen test mm-hmm. or a teaser trailer, <laughs> like um, like the one with Ed Mar- Ed Green, not Ed Green, um, Ed Green's his name on the show, Jesse Martin. Jesse Martin. I was about to say as, Ed Martin. Yeah, Jesse Martin is Marvin Gaye. Yeah, uh, you guys can search that. There's a there was a trailer, a teaser trailer <laughs> for that. That film never happened. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a screen test of Marlon Wayans as Richard Pryor. Uh, yeah. Uh, Mike Epps is playing him, even though it's been Mike Epps for like five years. <laughs> so I don't know if that movie's ever going to happen. Um, so I don't, I, you might have to, di- it, you know what's going to end up happening? It's going to be Daniel Kaluuya. You think so? <laughs> it's going to be a mistake. Well, you know what, though? I guess since uh, Chad Bozeman's dead, yeah, can't. Because if it was if Chad Bozeman was if alive, Chad was alive. Soul, it'd be him. It'd be him. He was the new Denzel. He was going to play every was, black person yeah, of note. He was Black History Month. Everyone. <laughs> We're doing a remake of Lilies of the Field, Chadwick Boseman. Yeah. We're making a movie about Clarence Thomas, Chadwick Boseman. <laughs> It's like why uh, we're making a movie about Barack Obama, chat with Bozeman, just lighting him up with some makeup. Like, just... We're making a, a a movie about um, Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, Chadwick Bozeman, I and mean, who else? Chad, Chadwick Bozeman. He can like, play both. We have the technology. We can we can totally do this. Uh, I. I... I thought that's where he was going to go, but I'm not saying like it's good that he's gone. I'm not saying that at all. But they would have abused him. Yeah, he would have been abused. And he absolutely. Like, like I'd rather do Black Panther Seven yeah. than do any of these <laughs> other movies. Okay. Than do Black Person Seven. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so um, I got some notes. As do I. So. Um, there was no narrator. I didn't which mind. Is I didn't mind. Atypical of a BBC film. Oh, good point. That is a good point. <laughs> um, but it was. I, I welcomed it. I welcomed it. Um, the the I guess kind of reenactment of the crash to start the film was an interesting choice. Yeah, I didn't get that because I didn't know. <laughs> oh, you didn't know? Okay, I knew nothing about the life and times of Teddy Pendergrass. So this was all new to me. Um, so I was like, is opening with a crash? That's a little ominous. Um, frankly, I thought that's how he died, maybe. Um, although it, it seemed like he kind of wished he had, but that's further down the line. Yes. Uh, yeah, let's not play the end. Um, 
Mom had six miscarriages. That's rough, bro. Ooh. When she said, you know, I had six and Teddy was the seventh, I was like, oh, six kids? No, no, six miscarriages. I lost Ooh. six kids. Like, that's rough. Yeah. Um, would not wish that on anyone. No. Uh, but, you know, it's good that she was able to <clears throat> at least have one. Yeah. But that that is that is rough. And he ended up being really special. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Seventh son. Um I have one more note and I I hope you made this note too. Um uh, interesting name for a gang. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a little so and we're, I'm not gonna say the name, but yeah, the MMs. The MMFs. Yeah, that was a that was a weird <laughs> Like it's just like who's who says that name? <laughs> I don't know. I, th- I just thought that was funny. Um, the mean streets of Philadelphia, of course. I imagine they were much meaner back then. Yeah, that was that was pretty interesting. Seeing his his connection to the streets. Both yeah, both there. Of course, I mean he didn't join the gang, but like seeing that and then seeing some stuff later that that was happening that I really want to get into because I, I think there should be a, there's one part of this documentary that I think deserves its own documentary but we'll, we'll get there but yeah um what what notes what what uh what, what notes did you have so far um so first off just love his voice that was the first thing I thought of because they opened with him singing forgot how much I liked his voice it's you know it's not like a baritone but it's a deep tenor yeah um I mean, he had he had pretty good range, but he was mostly like a grav a gravelly tenor. Um, you always get great great music in these sorts of doc in these sorts of um, documentaries. And then and then this is just an aside. Did Sammy Davis Jr. have a show? Yeah, I, I didn't a, know that. He had kind of a variety interview okay. type show. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then my next note, and this can kind of keep us going here. Who records their life like that? I know yeah. why later on he did it, but then it didn't make sense. It, I was like, why is he just it's like he had 60 secret tapes that he recorded about his life, which I imagine made this made making this documentary a lot easier yeah. than it would have been previous. Because I can't imagine other than like, you know, some people get someone to help someone to help them with their memoirs and they go out and do interviews and stuff like that. You've got firsthand from the source Anything else you get from interviews is just icing on the cake, which, you know, goes to show why this w- they were able to be so detailed with this documentary. But I thought that was odd that he's just recording himself. Well, I think he he wanted to tell his story. Yeah, I feel like. And um, he can't physically he couldn't physically write yeah. I feel, possibly. So, he so had to. I, we, I think it was just a way for him to tell his story mm-hmm. because. um it's it's an interesting story. Yeah, very. It really is. Um, uh, I know Makito was his friend. That was but... funny. His <laughs> like, bodyguard. Bodyguard, you just pulling ladies away from him. And Teddy didn't like he liked that. Like he wanted her he's, to stay. He's and, like, no, she can stay. And he's like, no. And what was funny is like he has not aged a bit. Like he looked the same, same haircut, same beard. I was like, this guy just doesn't. He likes how he looks. Well, I guess part of you know maybe he was the one who could deal with. I mean that like pulling her, pulling the lady away on while he's on stage is one thing. Mm-hmm. But if ladies had knives 
and yeah. other kinds of weapons. And man, they were backstage. Yeah, that's kind of scary. Um, okay, that that's where you earn your money. Yeah, that's that's a little. <laughs> that story kind of was a little disturbing. Yeah. Um, I've never been shy about telling people that I want to be. I want it for the longest, and I don't know if I still want to, but for the longest, I wanted to be famous. And when I say famous, I wanted to be I can't go to public places famous, which I imagine to a certain degree Teddy Pendergrass was. If I would have known that it came with women coming at me with large black knives, no thanks. Would you want to be that kind of famous? uh, I think there's a story where um, Michael Jackson went to Walmart Mm -hmm. with his bodyguard. And people were like starting to creep by to see who it was. And Michael told the bodyguard, tell him it's Prince. And he told him it and he told him it was Prince and they're like, Oh, okay, and then they walked away. <laughs> wow. That's got is that well, I mean, he's not alive, but I I wonder if that was a blow to his ego, <laughs> to Prince's ego when he found out. Yeah. Um Michael Jackson was petty, y'all, if y'all don't realize. Yeah. <laughs> Very petty. Uh-huh. It's just business. Like... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, man. Um, so, yeah. Uh, the next note I had was um, they talked to Gamblin' Huff. Yeah, course, so. Which was big. I've heard that name, but I wasn't 100% familiar with who they were. But what, uh, just a songwriting pr- production team, essentially, yeah. that had the, that the Philadelphia, Philadelphia International. Sound yeah. Is them. Yeah. Uh, they wrote for the OJs, Patti LaBelle. Um, I feel like they wrote they wrote for the Isley Brothers, maybe. Mm-hmm. I know that the Jackson 5, like their first mm-hmm. album after they left Motown mm-hmm. was with them. Okay. Or, or they, I know they at least did one working with them. Yeah, it sounded very kind of like early disco. A lot of their music did. I mean, you had like the 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 smooth funk with heavy emphasis on strings, which is Oh, Billy Paul, that's another one. Okay. Um oh, Billy Paul who did the um Me and Mrs. Jones. Yeah, that's a good that's a banger right there. Um But yeah, it it sounded very much kind of like early like like disco really. You just had the funk. And I mean, but then you also think that some of this music, it was late 70s, early 80s. So it made sense that it would be borrowing from what was popular at the time. Um, but yeah, there were I I'd heard of them, but I just wasn't that familiar with them until until uh, this. They actually did two albums with the Jacksons, but it was their it was their first ones after leaving Motown. Mm-hmm. Lou Rawls, um, the Jones Girls, okay. Archie Bell and the Drells, Nancy Wilson, Wilson Pickett. You know. Anyway, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I feel like that songwriters like them, you know, they always simplify things. Yeah. Like, oh, we just heard his voice. It's like, oh, we we, we got to do something with that guy. <laughs> like, it, that, that's it? That was that yeah. simple? <laughs> <laughs> I like. You know, it's like they knew right away. I like songwriting teams like that, too, because, like, they're a pair. And I imagine you just get to know each other and each other's quirks. Yeah. Like, I like that to where you can just write, you just like, yeah, you would add that chord. Like, you probably had that sort of relationship. <laughs> and I think that's that'd be really cool to have. Yeah. that. Um, and then with their, they had their own style, you know, developing their style of, you know, having the, 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 the big string arrangements and mm-hmm. the, the horns and, you know, kind of similar <laughs> to, um, well, actually, it's kind of like going big with the sound, mm-hmm. and compared to, I guess, somebody like 
James Brown kind of like kept it really tight. You like read my them, mind. It wasn't like as tight. It was bigger. It was yeah. more of a bigger sound. Well, it wasn't. It wasn't dirty. <laughs> yeah. It was very. It was very cleaned up, smooth funk music. Yeah, I kind of looked at it how um, a producer I would I would recommend that that you check out is Tom Bell. I've heard um, of Tom Bell. What has he What has he done though? Why do I know his name? Uh, worked with the the Delphonics. Okay. And um, T H O M, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's another. Uh, the Spinners, the Stylistics. Oh, I love the Spinners. Um, you know, he he kind of. I mean, he was he was <laughs> one of those Philadelphia guys too. Okay. Uh, big big sound, big arrangements. You know, mm-hmm. so yeah. Um, so yeah, they 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 really simplify things. Um, I don't know if you thought this, but when they started talking about him being part of Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, <laughs> I was like, Harold pulled the David Ruffin. Yeah. So it's, it's, <laughs> when that came up, um, the first so the first time I was introduced to Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes was when I heard their version of "Don't Leave Me This Way." Yeah. I never knew Teddy Pendergrass was first. in there. Well, I never oh, knew yeah. Teddy Pendergrass was in that. And I started listening. I was like, wait, hold on. Is that Teddy Pendergrass? Like, is that? And I looked it up, and it's just like, who the hell is Harold Melvin? <laughs> that was the first thing I thought. And like, that's what they're saying in the documentary. Like, oh, I thought Harold Melvin was, was yeah. Teddy. Like, who the who is who's, who's that? You gonna let him steal your like? You gonna let him come up here and do that on your record? He was twenty years old when he joined that group. So that was another thing I started I started looking at because you know by the eighties he's huge, and I'm like, this dude was born in 1950. Yeah. In 1970, when he joins Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, he is 20 years old. By the time they release their first single and he's singing on it, he's 23 years old. And he's already famous. (laughs) Like, that's, I don't know, like, that's just, that's kind of wild for me how quickly a a lot of these things happen for him. Yeah, it was was a a meteoric rise, if you will. Um, But I think that, like, Harold, I guess if you say that he discovered Teddy... But it was like he was almost immediately jealous. Yeah, it was. Um, so I wrote it was very Dan Gilbert of him. But like there's someone else I was thinking of that, you know, I, I, I kind of felt like he was basically trying to use him. Yeah. But like but he still wanted like it was this weird position of like, I want to use you for your talent, but I also want all the shine. So yeah. like you don't tell a lot of people that Teddy's the one singing and you just kind of let them think you're singing and it just all works out. (laughs) And it's just like, and you know, for someone like me, who's new to a lot of this, you know, when I heard that, I mean, I could relate when I was watching that everyone thought that Harold was singing. Yeah, me too. (laughs) I thought he was singing too. Because it's kind of like, um, you know, back to one of our earliest episodes about the temptations (laughs) miniseries. Oh man. <laughs> Otis was the leader of the group. Yeah. <laughs> and he had a group called Otis Williams and the Siberians, but he wasn't the lead singer. Al was the lead singer. Mm-hmm. But going forward, Otis is still the leader of the group. But did he try to take all the shine? No. He he he's the only original one left. Yeah. And he's still a singing <laughs> lead on nothing. So <laughs> It, but I th- I thought that that was the dynamic mm-hmm. because okay we Harold Melvin doesn't 
he sings leads sometimes, yeah. but the hits. Not on the bangers, yeah. Not, yeah, not on the hits. Um, but it was, he He was like the opposite uh, as far as his approach. His, he was opposite from Otis Williams. Yeah, I was trying to think, you know, when are other times that that had happened? Because that's such a unique situation, you know, outside of like, you know, I think of a band like Van Halen, you know, that that bears, you know, Eddie and Alex's name. But, you know, you've had three singers or I think of I'm trying to think there's I think there's a couple other bands that are like that. But like in R&B and soul and, and, and stuff like that, like, no, the, like the lead singer it's is usually the name. The name. And it's just like but not this if time. There is a name. Yeah. Because you found a generational talent that you that you're just like, I guess a lot of records with this dude. But he also did it without talking to the rest of the group. Yeah. Just put his name on it. It's like was a preemptive strike. Yeah. <laughs> like, did he see what they could what they could become? It's like, well, I'm putting my name on. This. I'm sure he did. Like, I mean, hell, as we said, Gamblin Huff. I just said their names right. Right. Yeah. Gamblin Huff. Gamblin Huff. I was about to say Procter and Gamble. Gamblin Huff. Um, like you said, they heard it, heard his voice once. That's <laughs> all it took, you know. Harold Melvin heard his voice once. That's all it took. Yeah, and it wasn't mentioned, I guess, until like an interview, uh, a little ways through the through the film. But he started off as their drummer. Yeah, which was hilarious. So, and when I heard that, I went back and looked to see if that was like for real, for real. And yeah, it's just like that's that was kind of funny to me. You started out as a drummer. How did you find out he could sing? Like, he just started, like, humming along one day. You're like, hey, man, do that louder. Because like, usually drummers don't talk. <laughs> I've been a drummer. We usually don't talk. Like, we just play. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, Harold did it for the reason uh, I thought all along without doing any research. Like, that had to be out of jealousy mm-hmm. uh, to, um, I mean, I think that, Teddy went solo because of Harold's jealousy. Well, I, I, I also wouldn't be surprised. I, I saw my thing. I put Harold dot, 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 lost his mind, threatening his life. <laughs> yeah. Like he took it a step further yeah. <laughs> than David Ruffin. Like he's threatening this dude's life. Um, and that's when I wrote very Dan Gilbert, holding him back, mm-hmm. holding him back, making him feel bad. Um, that clearly didn't work. No. <laughs> there had to have been a fight. I feel like that that part was left out. They they had to have fought. I could maybe maybe. They it's, I, it's I, like I'm leaving the group. You ain't leaving this group. I'm leaving the group. And then someone threw a punch. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I mean, yeah. so I mean, he was six one. How tall was Harold Melvin? Maybe five nine. Yeah. I, I'm pretty sure Teddy won that. Oh, fight. Teddy had the reach. I yeah, know he Teddy. Had the reach. Teddy's a <laughs> Teddy looked like he could have played point guard. Like he had long arms. I was like, oh, okay, you got that. You know, you play that defense. <laughs> <laughs> um, what 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 other notes did you have? Um, so right after that, of course, so when he talks about because I think right after that came the interview where he talks about having been the drummer. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought he had a very smooth voice. I'd never heard him talk before. Very calming, smooth voice, so I could see. While I work with the ladies, and then right after that, you start meeting the band. I loved that. And, of course, you find out by the end why you meet the band. But I like the fact that you met the band. Um, I thought that was funny that he said that he would be a good drummer because he had a gap <laughs> in his teeth. Played with a drummer who had a gap in his teeth. He was pretty damn good. <laughs> it kind of holds up. 
Um, but I really like that. Like, I, I think, um, and then, of course, like, with them adding instruments and playing that live version of TKO. Yeah. That's unique. That You're not getting that in Behind the Music, people. You're not getting that. <laughs> you're not getting, you know, uh, um, a version of TKO, Love TKO, that's building as they introduce you to different musicians. Like, that was so cool. Um, from the drummer to the bass player to the the obligatory token white guy playing trombone who was like, well, I was the only white guy. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, were you the Steve Cropper of the group? Was that your thing? <laughs> and if you don't know who Steve Cropper is, go look him up. Phenomenal guitar player from Booker and the MGs, part of that Stax group. Um, but I, I really did like that. Um, that actually might have been my favorite part of the whole documentary. That's for the musician and me. Um. Okay, so uh, the next thing I had was what well, Joe Tarsia, who was the, I guess he was their engineer. I think so. Yeah. Uh, he made a tremendous sacrifice. <laughs> his uh, mm-hmm. how you know all the all the work he did um, had an effect on his marriage. Yeah. Stuff out on the um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Gamblin Huff made an easy decision uh, as far as Harold tried to <clears throat> stop them from working with Teddy. You go where the talent is, and yeah. he really had no he had no leverage, yeah, zero leverage. Mm-hmm. And uh, the guy I can't remember I can't remember his name. But he was the one who was like doing the dance steps. I think he's the last living member of of the Blue Notes. Oh, that guy who I thought was gonna break a hip. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember. Yeah, he had a huge sweater on. That's my granddaddy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he's like, you know, Teddy uh, left Harold. The Blue Notes <laughs> left Harold. They both did their own thing. Uh, so it was like the. They made the easy decision to work with Teddy because, mm-hmm. like you said, he they're going where the talent is, yeah. and he's the voice of that group. Like somebody, somebody had earlier said that Harold Melvin sang lead on some sang lead on some songs, and I've never heard any of them, honestly. Yeah, uh, I haven't either. I, I wasn't sure they were such songs. <laughs> <laughs> um, Not ones that anyone cared about. Uh, so when he goes, so his first single is called "I Don't Love You Anymore," and like that was a diss song. <laughs> and <laughs> and to give credit to the editor, the perfect, the perfect edit coming into talking about his first, like, it just it fits so well. Like, yeah. and then he went solo, and his first single, like, it just great, great editing, great editing there. Yeah. What else did you have? Um. So. And I, because I think some there's, I might have skipped some stuff because it just didn't quite interest me. Um, I got to the part about the black mafia and Taz. Yeah. Um, I want a documentary that's on, the on that. Talking about. Okay. I want a documentary. That was, um, to me, so at first it felt very sudden. I kind of felt like it came out of nowhere in terms of like, yeah, she's controlling his career she's his manager and his girlfriend and she's controlling his career or she was, was she his wife at one point too no they just his girlfriend never okay. married. and all of a sudden she's dead and you've got the guy who you can barely understand without closed captioning you know 
apparently knows who did it, you know, and this thing I've never heard of called the Black Mafia comes up. And it's thought that they killed her because she would she wanted to take significant control of his career. And so that makes me kind of wonder. So when I talk about, you know, it's interesting to see at the beginning, I talked about it's interesting to see his connection to the streets. I think here's where it comes up again. If you've got the Black Mafia, which is made up, if I remember correctly from reading it, made up of um, um, black nationalists, it's, it's primary, primarily centered, I believe, in Philadelphia. What interest did they have in Teddy Pendergrass remaining famous? What was the interest there? That's an interesting question. Uh, Conspiracy Ben's coming out. Like, what's the, what is the, that makes you, what was she trying to do that made you kill her? So that also asks the question, did Teddy put a a hit on her? Don't know. He he was questioned by the police. Mm -hmm. There was no connection. But uh, the man who needed closed captioning, the DJ, um, I, I don't. No DJ has their ear to the streets like that anymore, of course. No. <laughs> but, uh, like, he, he, the way he was talking, he heard them planning it. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, and then heard her saying that it won't happen to me. Yeah. <laughs> and then the next day, they blew her head out. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> like, that was, and I was just like, I wanted them to stay on that. But I knew, I was like, no, you can't because this is not a documentary about that. This is just one part of his life. Um, but I felt like it was very sudden and they, I felt like, like, even though it was impactful, it kind of felt like they tried to kind of gloss over it, which makes me think that there's more that we don't know. Yeah. And I want, I want to know everything. I got a question related to that coming later. Okay. Um, well, I got a question coming later, but the next thing I had was during Taz's funeral. Mm Mm-hmm. How is Jesse Jackson still alive after what he did? I don't know. Yo. Yeah. Come on, man. Like, there's so Come much. Oh man. Maybe he's protected by the Black Mafia. I mean, who knows? <laughs> yeah. Is, who is knows? He, is he protected? Is he? Because when he, he looked at him, he basically kind of looked over at him and insinuated that he did this. Like, if, if, with, with something like that, yeah. one of them had to die. Because either the Black Mafia is like, we're behind you, Jesse. We'll do it. Mm-hmm. Or Teddy, you say the word and he's out of here. Somebody you had to die word. when you, when something you like that happens. <laughs> I don't know why I'm singing it, because but... <laughs> it's kind of like I'm, I'm. Like I said, it'll be a. It should be a future episode, but because um, well, we we kind of. I don't think I, we talked about it when we. It was the Sam Cook documentary episode. and the conspiracy around that yeah well not only with that but with uh <laughs> when he died like a couple of months later bobby womack marries his widow mm, yeah and that's part of like when i say ask your parents about bobby <laughs> womack and see what kind of reaction you get like that is dirty back into yeah. the highest degree yeah <laughs> so i i you know and i think like Sam Cooke's brothers like beat up Bobby later on after finding out he married <laughs> this widow. But uh, it, when when it's something like that, um, you know, some people have their have certain 
you know, there are certain reactions um, that people have, but in that moment, what the, I guess from my perspective, like somebody got to go if, yeah. you, if you're doing this. The town ain't big enough. Like that was, that was <laughs> Somebody's very. Somebody's got to go. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, maybe um, both of them were too important to the movement. Who knows? Because <laughs> Jesse Jackson is, you know, he's still kicking. So yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. Do you have any notes? Um. After that, my next note was Alice Cooper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought my I thought my movie was broken. Um. But I mean, it, it, I was still, you know, as, as you know, we we, although we're, I'm not a big fan of his music, nothing but respect for the man. From the way that he treats the musicians that he plays with and how he supports them, so yeah, I knew something good was about to happen if they're showing him. <laughs> yeah. um, and we find out that Shep Gordon, um, who apparently has a a history, so just reading up on him after he came on screen, Shep Gordon has a history of really creative ways in which to market his artists. Comes along and I mean, could you say puts him in the stratosphere essentially, like kind of. I mean, Shep Gordon comes in and and revit not revitalizes, but like basically points him in a different direction. So up to this point, you know, the, the first off, LOL at the all the Jewish managers. Yeah. That was funny as hell. <laughs> oh, the the pitch he made that was the most ridiculous. I was pitch like, what kind of interview is this? I've ever heard. Of. I can get high with you and still get you your money. Like, <laughs> prove it. Like. I'll, These other I'll guys might take your money. I'll make sure you have it. I'll prove it. But bring, I can get higher than you, though. Bring your best drugs, like, <laughs> <laughs> and let's just get and let's just do a whole bunch of coke and smack. And next thing, you, like, he's like, in a few days later, he gave in. <laughs> I was like, brilliant. Um, so yeah, I thought that was I thought that was interesting. So Shep Gordon coming in, you got to lose the dancers. Yeah, that was that was. I mean, it worked. You know. Um, so this is another part of the documentary that really upset me because why are we doing this to each other? Yeah. The Chitlin circuit. I did not know. And I spent a lot of time trying to research this and find out how true this was. I couldn't find anything. I don't know if you did, but the fact that they would not pay them to play, it was just expected that that, you do it. That happened more often than not because this is, you know, you're, the big venues, the white venues yeah. or whatever, they aren't going to have you on because, you know, this is still it wasn't segregated, but it was segregated enough, mm-hmm. you know. And, you know, when you're trying, that's why some artists are on the Chitlin circuit for so long because they have to play even more shows than they need to to make the money that yeah. they're trying to make. I mean, you could see that when we talked about, you know, for example, with Dream Girls. Jimmy's on the Chitlin circuit. Yeah. And he's famous among black people, but he's not uh he he's he's just a, a star with black people. Yeah, he's, he's not not white famous yet. He's not white famous yet, basically. Yeah. So that's why getting him to Miami with that ridiculous headshot oh, God. <laughs> was such a big deal. Um, you know, so I, I think this happened more often than not that black promoters or the black venue owners would not pay the performers or, or would short them. Yeah. You know, and it still goes on today. I mean, I remember an episode of Atlanta where, um, Paperboy is supposed to be at a club, make an appearance at mm-hmm. a club and have his own section and he gets paid for, yeah. for showing up because, Hey, come party with Paperboy kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, Earn Ernest is trying to get the money 
like get the payment. Yeah. And the club owner is basically trying to <laughs> avoid him. And yeah. then when they're like standing at the bar drinking, Earn turns this way. The club the club owner goes to this secret wall to his <laughs> office. <laughs> yeah. I can I can speak from experience that there are some shady promoters out there. And luckily with the advent of the internet, you can find out. Like uh, you'll see it like beware of this venue, they will try to stiff you. Um and it's really sad like pay pay your talent. Like just just pay your talent if you can't do it then don't have talent like it's it's that simple yeah but that when i that that i don't i felt like i was irrationally ir- irrationally upset but still upset that they were that they would do that like he goes to get the cash and the guy doesn't he's like ain't got it he gives him his ring you know and i thought it was about to get ugly i thought teddy was going to get mad but teddy was like no nah, bro this is going to be uh was the dude's name the almond brothers manager yeah <laughs> It's about to kill somebody. <laughs> That's about to stab him, man. I thought, well, I, you just you just never know. But, you know, and it's sad that he had to say, like, we're going to book with white promoters. Yeah. And then the black people got mad. Like, they were like, you know, they do the show at the Roxy in L.A. And they get death threats. The FBI they, has to protect them. Yeah. And it's just like, bro, I'm just trying to get trying to get paid. Trying to make my money, man. I'm pay pay get, me what you pay what you owe. Yeah, I'm just pay trying to get owe. paid. That's all. Like, it's. It wasn't like he was asking for something irrational. And I hate that he had to leave the black community to get it. But he, it it was, it was a risk. That yeah. You, I mean, you could alienate that audience, mm-hmm. but it worked because he went to the right place. And yeah. I think he, and he had the, um, he had a manager that I think he knew the risk. Of doing it, yeah. I, I would think he knew the risk, but he's like, "This is this is what we have to do because yeah. I'm not going to get treated like this. I don't want you to get treated yeah. like this." So he's he's doing he was doing right by Teddy yeah. by doing it, which comes to bear a little bit later too. Yeah, um, that this was a good guy. Shep is a good dude. Yeah, and I was like, "Well, of course he worked with Alice Cooper." Like he's gotta yeah. be, a, he's, he's gotta, gotta be, a be a good dude. Alice Cooper will only work with good. Yeah, people. like Alice Cooper would tell him to kick rocks if he thought he was bad. Like, like that guy seems like just to be a like he's a good person and just likely seems a good judge of character. I would trust him. Like if Alice Cooper himself get like, hey, work with this guy. Like, well, clearly he's he, he vouches for you. So come on, man, come on in. <laughs> Need a bed? Come on, man. You good? <laughs> um, but yeah, just I said, you know. Got death threats for not doing the Chitlin circuit. I was like, I'm very upset about this, but this manager's a genius. Yeah. Clearly, this guy knows what he is doing. And just by simple marketing, you know, he he knew what he knew what Teddy's audience was. <clears throat> the all female show, brilliant. Yeah, man, that's brilliant. I'm surprised Colonel Tom Parker didn't think of that. That's brilliant. <laughs> They're trying to make this man the Black Elvis. So I'd never heard of him called that before. He had that kind of, it was that kind of, uh, it was that kind of feeling. Yeah. Um, he had that swagger know, he, he, on that, stage. Yeah. That's what it was, you know. And when um, the one lady said it was women wanted to be with him, men wanted, wanted to, to be, be him. him. Yeah. <laughs> like that, that was, that was true. And it's this, it's this uh, tall, muscular dude. And with this powerful sing. voice, yeah. you know, he had the he had the bearded look before, mm-hmm. you know, 
dude started really rocking beers like yeah. that, man. Like it was yeah. And <clears throat> you know, he has on the he's wearing the uh the tank tops with all the chains. Mm-hmm. Um he made some weird costume choices yeah, early in his career. Yeah. Even the worse cape. than the cape. <laughs> there on the if you watch Teddy Pendergrass unsung episode um now if you saw in this documentary early in the, when they I think when they did their first single he kind of had a conch or it was or it was more like the the afro was combed back mm-hmm. was kind of styled and and combed back a little but he had this I want to say perm, but it was more of a conch, but everything was like combed down, like hanging over over his face. And it looked mm-hmm. like he was wearing a wig. It was it was, it looks very weird. But he came he came to the you know they're doing their own soul train or something. It's like oh yeah, the girls gonna go crazy for this, and everyone thought he just looked ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, he he dialed it back. So what you see in the documentary, I think that's him dialing it back mm-hmm. on that style. But um, but the concerts with only women, and then like the way they promoted it, like you can call this number, yeah, and you know it was called "Spend the Night with Teddy." Like he he knew his audience, and he knew um, like he could it just he I don't know if it was like him playing a character, but just be who he is on stage, yeah, and you know like. They sold out the show. Yeah. Or it was probably several shows. Yeah. <laughs> where where um it was just women only and I feel like there were some stories of men trying to sneak in and, and find out if their girlfriend or wife is in the, at the concert. <laughs> he was Mr. Steal Your Girl, man. Yeah. He was <laughs> mess around and she won't come back. She'll run up on Teddy with a knife. Like <laughs> So what did you think about um like Quest Love is in the documentary. Mm-hmm. Um Apparently, he lived next door to Philadelphia International, <laughs> which is crazy. Uh, his comment about black male sexuality, especially at, at that time. So I was very curious where that was going <laughs> because he's playing to mixed audiences, which by that time wasn't as taboo as it was maybe 20 or 30 years ago in the 50s or the 60s and, you know, even in the 40s. Um, kind of thinking back to... The United States versus Billie Holiday, you know, really taboo back then. So I was very curious where it was going to go. Um, it's definitely something I've heard of, even as or, as recently as when Hitch came out. You know, they wanted yeah. Cameron Diaz in that role, who I'm pretty sure is like half Hispanic anyway, but they wanted Cameron Diaz in that role. And they were like, no, America's not ready for a black man and a, and a white woman and to have a romantic relationship. I mean, like. There's, I feel there's truth to it, but I, I, I mean, I don't know if people were really thinking about that then, because I mean, hell, they they interviewed. I know this is only one white dude, but they interviewed a white dude. It's like I love Teddy, and my wife loves him too, and it's just like it. It's kind of seemed like, like he. But the concert's just for women. Like I want to see. I want to see him too. Like it, it just kind of <laughs> seemed like it didn't. It just didn't matter. I think because because of the the songs were. Even though you know you listen to a Teddy Pendergrass song, this is clearly, it's clearly a, a black man. This is clearly R and B soul. But I think at the same time, it's accessible to white. Yeah, people. everyone can get into it. Everyone get down. Yeah, and that's why, um, even though white people probably only like you know maybe a couple of the songs mm-hmm. or, or will reference a couple of the songs, but it was still accessible to mm-hmm. them. Uh, 
So because they were able to get into it and, and actually like along with Teddy Pendergrass, a lot of white people like Barry White. Oh yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you know, if you got, you know, guys with powerful voices like that, um, that white people can get into, then, you know, you're going to cross over oh, or yeah. whatever. So it was he he had he had that audience too. Mm-hmm. And um like you said at at that point like it doesn't it will it was it was just interesting yeah that this man had was was so popular with everyone and mm-hmm. that he is on the verge of superstardom like yeah. global yeah. superstardom and you know you kind of look at it now like how just follow me on this example all right all but right how Bill Cosby became America's dad mm-hmm. of this black man is America's dad. Like yeah. in the eighties, how it was looked mm-hmm. at that way yeah. or how Michael Jordan was looked at as the biggest athlete in the world, mm-hmm. you know, in the late eighties, early nineties and kind of how LeBron is now Yeah, that it, it goes beyond racial lines, but they don't have to change anything about themselves yeah. to be that. Yeah. And, Teddy Pendergrass was one of those one of yeah. those guys. Yeah, I think it it kind of helps if you're um like a once in a lifetime at what you do. Yeah. Like it typically you typically see it when it's just like, you know, you're the best in the world at this, you know. Michael Jackson of course, you know, another example of that, but like yeah. you're you're the best in the world and whether you're red or yellow, black or white, like you're selling tickets, you're you're you're, <laughs> you're on TV shows. Like the amount of variety shows I saw that he was appearing on with white hosts, which yeah. I know back then that was the thing. But like the fact that they had him on at all, like I, I know a lot of people don't. I, I know very little about him, but I, I know it's a big deal when you're on Charlie Rose. Yeah. Um, when you're on Merv Griffin. Yeah. Those were like, yeah, those were big deals back in the day. <laughs> yeah. And I thought that was interesting because I was like, okay, he's like, he's bigger than I thought he was. Like to me, when I think of Teddy Pendergrass, I think of late 70s, early 80s soul music that I almost kind of feel like is its own genre because like you have like this period where like it kind of got a little more electronic, but it's it's tried to sound like us from the 60s and 70s. But it used like drum machines and synthesizers. It was just yeah. like they're like down home blues by I think it's like ZZ, ZZ Hill. Hill. And it's got like real guitar in it, but it's got like this fake it's clearly a drum machine. <laughs> it's just like Yeah, I don't know, but like made me think of that uh that infomercial selling like the the blues CDs. Yeah. <laughs> and ZZ Hill is that name that's Yeah, down home blues. But yeah, like as um he was, I guess he was just bigger than I thought he was. I thought he was just like, you know, kind of big or like black folks big. Didn't realize he was this big. Didn't know he was a sex symbol. But then as they kept going, I was like, I guess it makes sense. Like he does, he does baby making music. So, you know, he's sitting on that one talk show and they're like reading the first. The first four five, songs. Yeah, four songs. And they're all like very suggestive. And he's, <laughs> and he's, you know, he's. I guess he's turned into Clark Kent at that point because he's got on the yeah, suit the and the glasses. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, this is in, this is intellectual, Teddy. But later, you know, 
Sexy Teddy come out. He take off the glasses, <laughs> open up a button, and it's just like, oh, you know, like it was, it was. He was like the man of all you know ages. And I'm trying to think of somebody like a singer now that you can compare him to. Maybe early 2000s Usher, maybe. Yeah, maybe early Usher. Um, Where he just had that appeal, you know? Yeah. But he didn't have to compromise what he was doing to get there. But then he did and started doing EDM, and that's kind of, you know. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying he sold out. I'm sure he likes the music he's doing, but it's clearly different from the entire rest of his career. <laughs> um, When he clearly just didn't have to do that to be a superstar. Yeah. I can't think of anyone else off the top of my head right now, though, in terms of black singers that, you know, achieved that without changing who they were. You know, Chris Brown was, I think, was getting there. And then the rounded thing happened. And it seems like he's like he's hood famous, but he's still famous in certain pop circles, just maybe because of what he was. Yeah. But then you still have the people who will never forgive him for the Rihanna thing. And he like leaned into that so hard. Uh, what? How about the weekend? He's. I think he's getting there. I mean, he did the Super Bowl, so I guess you could kind of say. But I feel like he kind of changed. I mean, like I think there's a distinct yeah difference like between these albums yeah. versus the mixtapes. Yeah. Yeah. Like I think the closest thing, like the only song that I've heard where I was like, oh, I thought that was an old song, was The Hills. Like, listening to the Hills, I was like, yeah, this would fit on the mixtapes. Everything else is just, like, too polished, too pop. And that's not a bad thing. I love those songs. But, like, it's just, I, I feel like he... Max sh- Martin doesn't know any other way. No, he does not. Neither does Daft Punk. No, they don't. Yeah. <laughs> Which is just funny that he he crossed over so much that he was able to work with, like, some of the biggest producers not in, in the United States, in the world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, a little world. Literal world, but... Yeah. Um I I know you didn't see this coming but I, I because I know I knew the woman's name. Uh the Tanika Watson introduction. Oh yeah, so that was, was uh like oh this is this is an interesting time to introduce Tanika Watson but yeah. for the uninitiated it's it's another woman. Yep. <laughs> or so we thought. <laughs> yeah. Um but before we get to that um, so his his wife was I think it was his wife the woman who he started dating after he fired the dancers. Yeah, she was one of the dancers. Yeah, um, Karen. she was. Um, she wouldn't go on the road with him. I thought that was interesting. It was like a tacit admission, admitted uh, admittance. Is that the word? Admission. Excuse me. A tacit admission. I know what's going on, and I want no part of it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think if she was comfortable with herself and secure. That yeah, he's gonna do what he's gonna do. Mm-hmm. I don't want to see it. Yeah, and I mean nothing that she said leaned towards he's embarrassing me. Mm-hmm. So I think she she just knew what she was in for. Yeah, but she loved him. Yeah, so there you go. Um, and then with the other with the other girlfriends, there were like three other girlfriends. Yeah, that was, and so I had a hard time kind of keeping track. Yeah, I did because <laughs> I, I was did. Like, like, "Who's wait, a wife? What is who's this? a girlfriend? <laughs> who's a friend? Like a fling?" Like <laughs> the only reason I knew, like, okay, that's the wife because her last name was still Pendergrass. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone else, okay, this is Yvette. Um, 
Janice, Gladys, Latoya. I don't know. I don't know the other women's names. But it was like three or four of them. Um. So, uh, the well, there was the police harassment. Um. So I didn't know he had gone to what looked like juvie. Mm-hmm. Um. So that was. It, it changed kind of how he was as far. I mean, he was already, he said he was raised to be an independent person. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that kind of changed his, I don't think it got too much into how arrogant and cocky he actually was. So that was an interesting part because they didn't, They so you're right, they didn't do a whole lot of it, but I felt what they showed really leaned into it. Yeah, They're like, we're not going to harp on this, but. Here's some clips of him like being really arrogant, like, and I should say, like, oh, that's some of these things you, sh- yeah. Um, something I had never seen before, and it's sadly the collabo that we never got. Teddy Pendergrass and Lionel Richie. Oh, so when he does, um, he does lady, lady, yeah. I I I liked it. Yeah, so did I. Uh, it's. It's more associated with Kenny Rogers, of course, and that was the only that's the only recording of, of <laughs> Teddy Pendergrass singing this song. But you know, Gambling Huff could like it got him it got him to where he was. Gambling mm-hmm. Huff got him there. But um <clears throat> working with someone like Lionel Richie or eventually if it was like David Foster Oh, or, you know there would have been some David Foster in there, or or Diane Warren. Um, Again, yeah, you know, he Bert stayed Bacharach. early into like the late eighties and nineties. He definitely probably would work with Diane Warren. I imagine. Uh, yeah, so I was thinking also like Burt Bacharach mm-hmm. and um, uh, maybe Dion Warwick, maybe, but duets with her, yeah, at least. Uh, that would have been a. That would have been huge. Yeah, um, I think he. That's that's what would have pushed him to global superstardom. Yeah, because uh, I think then time, he probably would have started. Give me a as second, the fix this camera. Okay. No, I, I think as the '90s went on too, you probably would have seen him. And not to get too far ahead of ourselves, we might have seen him in being on more soundtracks. So I think kind of like. Uh, the Waiting to Exhale soundtrack and how it had that track with, was it that or was it Set It Off? Um, where it was like that generation, it was like a bunch of generations of singers. Um, it was like Gladys Knight, Shaka Khan, Brandy. That was Set It Off. That was Set It Off, okay. I could see that happening. He would have, no doubt would have been on You Will Know by Black Men United and would have had like probably a first verse because the guy was, at that point would have been a legend. Um I, so I think he would have, you know, essentially kind of lived on into the 90s, maybe had a, um, even a resurgence kind of like Barry White did with the Icon is Love, which yeah. came out in the mid 90s and and gave um, Barry White a hit album and a, and a radio hit yeah. and introduced some people like me who were, you know, a young kid. It's probably like nine or 10 years old. Well, I told you uh, reading like reading Jet magazine as a kid. Oh, yeah. That and Jet. On the last page, they'll top, have the top yeah. 10 songs. Practice What You Preach was number one for like yep. a year and a half, at least. <laughs> when Barry White came back, people, and my mother, I remember, bought the album. And I used to listen to it, and 
I will tell you this, man. Like, there were still some tracks on there that were straight disco. Like, he didn't <laughs> leave it in the 70s and the 80s. He just, it was, I was like, yeah, this is still kind of disco. Um, So, we get to the uh, the car accident. That uh, For the uninitiated, yeah. I, I, I put, this could provide an M. Night Shyamalan type of twist for yeah. those who don't know. Did not know. It didn't come off that way, though. Yeah, they they, they they still kind of brushed over it. Yeah, well, so it was, so and, and brushing over it, yeah, because I think they still gave a lot of time to it, but more so the aftermath. Yeah. Um, but the events leading up to it, I think they they might have glossed over it out of respect, because they talked about like what could have caused it. Was he high? Was he drunk? Who knows? But like, I think. Out of respect, maybe. Because, I mean, unlike the last one that we did, everybody was involved in this one. The family is involved. Um, the band members were involved. And so when you have that, there is, unfortunately and fortunately, but for us, unfortunately, there's going to be stuff that's left out. If the family is like, no, we don't want that said, you can't put it in there. Or they'll, you know, they'll take back everything that they've you know, done, and there's, you know, quite a few interviews with them. They don't give you access anymore. So you kind of got to do what they want. Yeah. And I think that might be why they didn't really harp on it because, you know, even in the lead up up to it, you know, it's kind of damning to say, yeah, he was driving faster than we wanted. Okay, now you're showing that Teddy Pendergast is reckless. <laughs> like, you know, um, and then when it gets further, it's like, you know, it's supposed to be a tragedy, but then, you know, like, man, was he high? Did he do this to himself? You don't want to soil the memory, so you you gloss over those things as 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 little as you can. You don't all out ignore it because this is the information age, and we can go and look for it if you want. And I don't know if they try to push a different kind of angle by talking about he had all these new cars that had issues. That yeah, that was another thing too. Um, so then this brought me back to, like I said, this is a question I wanted to ask you. Um. Do you think this was karma? Have we just been doing this show so long that we can read each other's minds? Because <laughs> essentially, I was. We've known each other almost 20 years, Ben. Jesus Christ. Has it really been that long? Yeah. <laughs> God, God, we're old. Yeah, no, no we're I not. was. We're young. We're young at heart. <laughs> right. So, no, I was, I was thinking that around the time of. Um, when you kind of brought up, like, you know, he could have taken a hit out on her. Um, and there were a couple other things that he did that made me think that, like, he probably screwed some people over. He's kind of arrogant. This might be karma coming back to get him. Um, I don't know, but possibly. I, I Conspiracy Ben likes to think that maybe his brakes were cut by the Black Mafia because they didn't like what he was doing. Um he, he didn't pay what he was supposed oh, to pay. Oh, he didn't pay? Because we still don't know st- what like, their interest was in Taz's his career. Taz's murder is still unsolved. Like, what is what what vested interest did they have? Because that guy swears up and down, it's the black mafia. Those who know won't tell. Those who talk don't know, and those who know won't tell. So, <laughs> but yeah, I kind of thought, like, maybe that it is a little bit of karma for how he, he li- kind of lived his life. You know, you... You walk out on on Dan Gilbert. I mean, Harold Melvin. <laughs> um, you possibly take out a hit on your girlfriend. 
Maybe. Yeah. Because maybe. you signed a bad contract. Yeah. So I don't know. Um, everything though that kind of surrounded that moment was kind of a WTF moment. Um, the fact that you find out that the that um, what's her name is she's trans. Tanika Watson. Tanika, you find out that she's trans. Um, I felt like that was thrown in for shock value. Kind of felt tasteless, like where he made the comment, oh, he was driving and reached down. To, like, I kind of felt like he, you really didn't need to put that in. Like, that kind of felt out of line. Well, yeah, I mean, when you're trying to rationalize the whole thing, when you're mm-hmm. trying to make it make sense, um, you know, yeah, I can understand what you mean there. Um, but no one knew. Yeah. No one knew until, um, apparently some cop who had arrested her before said something. No one really gave it a second thought. And then, and then you have all the, the sound bites of everyone. She was hot. She was beautiful. She was like, as if it was just, it felt weird and kind of cringy. I mean, maybe you can get away with that in the nineties, but it's, I mean, this documentary is only a couple years old. Like. It, it just it felt it felt like it was done in poor taste, and I don't know what's going on over in the UK. This is a BBC documentary. Maybe they don't care, but like I just it just felt a little. It felt off. That's all I can really say. It just felt off. Yeah, because they didn't really go into any more depth. Like, did he know what kind of conversation did they have? Because yeah. basically, it seemed like uh, he had he had seen her on the street before, and then he saw her at the bar and mm-hmm. wanted to take her home. Yeah, and then there's the accident. There is nothing more than that. Yeah, I just so. I didn't know where they were going with it. And I guess maybe if there was a little bit more context, it would have made more sense, but it felt like it was just thrown in. Yeah. Uh for shock value. Um along with, you know, which I guess there's an this is more of a callback, you know, with the they might have cut his brakes type thing. I would have liked to have gone a little a little bit more in depth there. Um it would have felt out of the blue without the reference to the black mafia earlier and the killing of his girlfriend. It, that would have felt out of place. Um, maybe an editing decision. I, I don't know, but I mean, like I said, I want to know more about this black mafia. Or maybe maybe they wanted, maybe they tried to ask and no one said anything. So they just tried to make it seem like it might be connected, yeah. but without actually saying it might be connected. Cause I thought where they were going next was, and then he sued Rolls Royce. Like I thought that's where it was going next. <laughs> You know that this is America. That's you know that's that's what happens, people, in America. Um, so yeah, I it wasn't the I knew that the twist was coming, but it wasn't in the way that I thought it might go. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the rehab, and you know he's he goes into a deep de- deep depression. Yeah. It uh, goes into a very so that's when I wrote what kind of direction did this just take. And there were so many pictures of him in the wheelchair just looking sad and yeah. angry, just no smiling, no talking. Mm-hmm. And every picture looked like, are you done with the pictures? Yeah. Like, I I don't want to be here right now. Yeah. I don't want to do this. That yeah. That's what every picture looked like. Mm-hmm. That's what these interviews look like. Yeah. Um, and it was so many pictures. Like, yeah. <laughs> like. Like, how do you, what do you, I think everything was starting to be, it could have been sensationalized in a way. And the mm-hmm. documentary didn't do it that way. Yeah. But I feel like at the time, 
it probably could have looked that way. He might have been all over the National Enquirer or whatever tabloids, mm-hmm. these different magazines, um, you know. But I think, like, certain black publications like Jed and Ebony, they don't really do that. No. So I think that he, he may have been protected in that way or maybe people forgot about him in that way. <clears throat> um, but there were just I, – I just kept seeing pictures of him just like, looking this uh, it yeah. just it was very sad and it was hard to watch he didn't know if he'd ever sing again which yeah. when that's you know your livelihood and i thought some people were like well boohoo he's got his money but it's it goes beyond money it's not just yeah it's not like just you gotta about think money. about like there's something that he yeah. saw jackie wilson as a kid yeah and like this is what i want to do with my life like i would tell someone to think about what you love to do the most in your life now being now imagine it being taken away, but not just taken away, taken away in a very violent manner. Yeah. You know, it's that's got to be rough. Like it's you know, that's man. And, and that's when I just started to feel awful. Um, and that's when I wrote that Shep managed Alex of uh, Alice. Of course, he's a good dude because his main concern is to take care of his family. He's yeah. like, we had to get his family some money. You know, he he he's trying to sell records for him. Um, I imagine there's a little bit of self-preservation as well, too, because you're this guy's manager. You know, you're managing what seemed to be the next big thing, and now all of a sudden you can't. So I'm sure there's a little bit of self-preservation as well. But the fact that he was trying to help his family out, I don't care if he was trying to help himself as well. He was still trying to do right by his family. Yeah. He was still trying to do the right thing. Which, you know, and there's nothing wrong with wanting to help yourself because this is your livelihood, too. Let's just be real. Yeah. So I I appreciated that about him. And the fact that he got out there and tried to give another record deal. Yeah. And eventually did. Um, and then it kind of started to feel like Bionic Man. They were like, we can rebuild him. We can help yeah, him that, see. That one, that one doctor, like. Had all the answers. Like, it's the vocal cords like, and the fold, and, but it's not this. Like, what I put, like, who knew singing was so physical? Yeah. so physical. And then I started thinking, because I started thinking to myself, like, do I use my back when I sing? Like. Um. But I also was the record company wrong to like kind of move away from him. I mean, I mean, like they didn't know if he was going to be able to sing again. Yeah, and it's a it's it was a long process. We're talking about three four years before the next album, and so it's a long process to even get like he doesn't sound yeah. the same. It clearly no. didn't sound the same. But it got back to where you know the fan base. He has the support. He has mm-hmm. the fans that still that still love him. Yeah. If he puts out something, they're gonna at least give it a shot. Yeah. Record company's gonna record company. I'll just say that. Like they <laughs> yeah. they have dropped people for less. <laughs> I'll just say that much. They've dropped people for less. They they didn't get known for it until like the mid to late nineties. But there's always a story that goes like, you know, if Bruce Springsteen was around now, we'd never know who he was because his first two albums flopped and he would have been dropped. So Record companies have have dropped people for less, so I'm absolutely not surprised at all they dropped him. Um, I thought that perhaps the psychotherapist that was also quadriplegic mm-hmm. could have been a bigger part of the story. Agreed. I I, I think that because that, that he kept him alive. <laughs> yeah, because that the 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 faux funeral. Mm-hmm. I feel like that is a that's a huge moment. Um, where he, 
you know, and it's important for any any therapist or counselor in these kind of situations to listen. Mm -hmm. And when Teddy said, I probably won't see you again. What do you mean? Probably. Yeah. You know, because like basically he was saying, I, I'm going to I'm going to take my life mm -hmm. and trying to talk him out of it. Yeah. He, he pulled him back just a little bit. Yeah. To get that probably. Yeah. And then with the with the fake funeral, you know, I don't know what what he was thinking while under <laughs> that sheet and people are, are giving their eulogies and their giving their well wishes or what have you mm -hmm. or everyone's feelings but it changed like that i imagine it was very hard to hear yeah you know because you probably you're probably thinking when you go under that sheet like no one cares about me but then all these people line up and tell you but it's, in their own it's, way it was your wife at the time mm -hmm. i think he got married twice since then okay um your wife at the time, your kids, yeah. your mom, mm -hmm. <laughs> your friends, your yeah. manager, you know, they they love you. Yeah. And to to turn around and to try to make something out of this, like, okay, we're, I'm going to try to sing again. I'm going to yeah. make this happen. And when people were saying that he wouldn't not only not walk again, but not sing again. Yeah. Like he... I think he was determined at that point to kind of to to step up to the challenge. Mm -hmm. um, it was very inspirational. <laughs> I wrote this because I felt like people were thinking this. If you know about if you knew about Teddy Pendergrass and you're at the Live Aid concert, you wanted him to sing "Close the Door" or something. <laughs> <laughs> he can't sing that anymore. Like he can't do not, that. Not like he used to. No. Yeah. <laughs> I felt like someone was like. See, come and go with me. Like, someone wanted that. <laughs> but um, even still, that was a, that's a huge moment. Yeah. Because that's in, that's not only him performing again, but it's in front of the world. Yeah. And he was, I mean, he was terrified. Yeah. He, he almost yeah. didn't do it, but his manager's like, I'm putting you out and there then, anyway. You, you just sit you out just... there. <laughs> Shep was funny. I would like to meet Shep. He seems like a, a cool guy. Yeah. He's like, well, we got to do it. <laughs> He's like, I don't, I don't care if you sing, but I'm rolling you out there. <laughs> like, oh <laughs> uh, yeah, he was there. Yeah, that that you know, I said before we started recording this, I was like, Greg, what do you got me watching, man? This this had me tearing up. Like it was, I don't know, because I guess I've you know, I've I've not been in that situation, but I've been nervous before, like to where like I was like, I can't do this. Um. And then, like, you get that support from someone and you go out there and you do it. And I could I could 100 percent relate to this. Um, and it felt good to see him win. It felt good. Did he sound like he did before? No, he did not. Like you said, he just didn't. Um, but it was great to see him go out there and get that win. And it was great to see that he still had that support. Like everybody was rooting for him. To to succeed, and that made me feel good. Um, yeah, the last note that I had is uh, when they have the reunion performance with the Teddy Bear Orchestra. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a nice way to end it. Yeah, um, and they had the um, I forget the young lady's name, but she's you know singing like the she got some range, bro. She was the, able to get low. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, kind of the the. The duet 
mm-hmm. of, of making a, a duet of Wake Up Everybody. But there you see that they're playing on the screen the performance from Soul Train. With the blue notes. Did you notice Teddy was the only one with the microphone? I did not. That's hilarious. And I think that was their last big single before he left the group. Well, cause they refer to it as, they say, we call it Break Up Everybody. <laughs> so he's the only one with the microphone and the other ones are just sitting there. Yeah. Uh, Harold Melvin had to be like fuming. Oh, he was seething. He's like, I discovered this man. I made him what he is. I'm I got to sit here and watch this. Okay. Like a, like an Eric <laughs> Stefani. I convinced her to join the band. <laughs> I'm going to go right for the Simpsons. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, throughout history, you, you're, you're, you're going to see that. Like it, it's called follow the talent. I mean, like there's so many bands out there, so many groups, you follow the talent. You just do. Whether it's Gwen Stefani, whether it's Haley Johnson, or no, Haley Williams, whether it's Cisco, whether it's Eminem, with D12, like whoever it is, you follow the talent. Like it's always been that way. Um, and Harold found out the hard way, man. Yeah. Like you can't keep a player down. Like if you would have just, if honestly, if you would have just paid him right. And this also makes me think of get on up. <laughs> like you follow the talent, you know, he knew he couldn't, he couldn't be James. He knew he couldn't be, you follow the talent and Harold could have, if Harold would have treated him right, it could have been, he could have been there along for the ride. Those songs would have been Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. And he would have been along for the, yeah, and been making money and everything. Eagle and, well, got he, he, he would have still eventually went solo. But <laughs> the <laughs> well, run could have been a little while longer. Yeah, yeah. Because like you said, you can't, you can't keep a player down. I do wonder how much longer it would have lasted. Because uh, the first single, the first um, solo album was 1977. Um, he was 27 years old. 30 by the time he breaks, he starts breaking in the 80s. Um, but then, of course, you know, by the time he's, what, 32, 33 is when he has the accident. The accident, it was right before he turned 32. Okay, so, you know, not not a lot of time as a superstar. So, I mean, does he come out with his first solo album instead, maybe then in 1980? Instead, if he if he stays with, with Helen Melvin and the Blue Notes. But if he would have just kept his mouth shut and just like, hey, man, just like this, we got this good thing going. And and pay 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 what you owe. Yeah, just pay what you owe. Yeah, you could have been right there. Now you're a footnote. <laughs> like you're you're Harold Melvin. Half of the people listening probably don't even know what you look like. <laughs> are they are they just realizing? Oh wait, that's not Teddy Pendergrass. Nope, it is not. I thought it was Teddy Pendergrass in the Blue Notes. No, it ain't. No, nope. So um, that will do it for our discussion on Teddy Pendergrass documentary. If you don't know me, check it out on Showtime. Um, so we'll get to my earworm of the week. Uh, so this, uh, album just came out. Um, let me check the date. Uh, it came out last week. Okay. Um, get that new, new. And it's the debut album of, we have to call her Academy Award winner, her. I love her. (laughs) Um, so, um. Is that song even on the album? The song she won for isn't even on the album. <laughs> it might be a bonus track or something later. 
But uh, it's a song that I heard uh, because I follow one of the co-writers of the song, Lunch Money Lewis. Oh, he's on this? He he co-wrote one of the songs. Okay. And it's called Process. I love that guy's name. <laughs> and I just like the I like the way the song sounds. Um, and he's one of those guys that's he tries to write simple songs like Bruno Mars, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, or or some songs that are silly. Yeah. But uh, I I like how this song came out. So this song is called Process, and uh, we'll be right back. I'm just trying to process what just happened. I'm just trying to express what I'm feeling When the pressure gets too intense Burn some incense Stop and take a deep breath Really is that Holding it back like a slingshot Holding it back like Just let me go. Oh, clocking the drill, stopping the flow. You already know what time it is. Don't need a Rolex. Do you see the sign? Tell me, do I need a protest? Are you always keep on slowing up the progress? Got me losing nights. Guess I'm going through the process. I got some things that I gotta get off my chest. Screaming through the phone like we're trying to have a contest. Always keep on slowing up the progress. I'm losing nights, guess I'm going through the process. Pushing all my buttons to drive hunting. Say I'm off the deep end. Yeah, right, you reach it. You better stop, you bet not. Ay, I'm about to pop like rim shot. To trip, I'm about to blow. You already know what time it is. Don't need a Rolex. Do you see the sign? Tell me, do I need to protest? Are you always keep on slowing up the All right, that is Process by Her from her debut album, Back of My Mind. This her debut album? Yes. As far as like an LP, got a couple of EPs out this there. This is, see, this is what we're talking about, man. Albums are hard to come by nowadays. <laughs> like full LPs are tough to come by. Yeah. It's EPs <laughs> or singles. Like that's what it is. It's like the modern NBA. Layups or threes. Like <laughs> mid range, nah, bro. We don't do that, man. They Chris Paul speaking of which, let's 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 Oh yeah, what's the squad? Uh, I'm sure the game's over. But let's see. Is it three L? Let's see. Uh oh. It is not. It's 2-1. It is 2-1. And right. a, a fairly convincing 2-1. So. What, did Kawhi play or something? Probably. <laughs> he was listed as out. I'm kidding. He didn't. Paul Paul George is that dude. I, 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 I doubted him just like people doubted the Hawks. I was like, there's no way he can he can put on his own special performance. And then he did. And, yeah, and all the world was better for it. So. I think Phoenix is okay with that, but the Clippers know 
game four also a must win. Yeah. No, they've so I mean like they're as the Hawks are, the Suns are also playing with house money. No one expected oh, this. This Booker struggled and Chris Paul. Yeah. A combined ten for forty. Which is why I told people the Hawks, if they make the finals, can beat the Suns. I I was there at the last game. I know they had just played a double overtime game, but they still blew them up by 30-plus points. So, yeah. This was a struggle all around this yeah. game. Both teams, really. I, I love Devin Booker. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy that he is – that he's having a good season. He's He got what he needed. Which was a point guard. Yeah. He needed a point guard. They wanted point Booker. It's like you can't do. <laughs> no, you don't want one guy to make all the passes and score all the points. One of the things I find funny about the Ringer when I still listen to them pretty regularly, and I still kind of do, like how they call like anytime you have like someone who's not normally a point guard running point, they have the like point point Blake. <laughs> <laughs> was one when he was doing it up in um, Detroit. They're like, yeah. oh yeah, I like this Point Blake experiment. <laughs> well, that well, that's kind of what it is in with the Clippers. It's Point George, right? Yeah, now. yeah. <laughs> and I love to see it. Uh, uh, or well, with New Orleans toward the end of the season, it was Point Zion. Yeah, and we're we're <laughs> probably going to see that a lot more. Yeah, yeah. Very uh, curious to see what happens there. I, I don't see New Orleans matching whatever Lonzo gets. He's, he's a restricted free agent. Yeah, come on to the Hawks, baby. Come on, I'm playing. I'm playing. Because he'd he'd want to start. He'd he'd want starter money. Yeah. yeah. Um. Well, anyway, uh, that'll bring us to the end of this episode. Um. This was I. I this was a good episode. Yeah. It well, it, it's a, it was such a tragic story, you know. Yeah. And I was not joking when I said I teared up, you know, around that time because it was it was just very inspirational. So. I would definitely, you know, even though I said this is not the best documentary I've ever seen, it is a really, really good it's documentary. Really, yeah, it's really good. Um, it's in, it's engaging, and I I would definitely suggest watching, especially if you're a Teddy Pendergrass fan, especially because there's a lot of intimate moments with him when he's reading his, you know, recording his tapes, like excellent stuff. Yeah. Uh, well, that would do it for this episode. Um, what should we end the show with, Ben? Don't leave me this way. Don't leave me this way. So Superior to the Thelma Houston version. Nothing wrong with the Thelma Houston version. But when I heard this one, it was over. Um, I believe this version was played in, um, what was the, um, what was that movie? Uh, um, uh, Can't Hardly Wait. For real? I think this version was in Can't Hardly Wait. It's been years since I've seen Can't Hardly Wait. A classic, if I've ever seen one. So, uh, if this Who was in Can't Hardly Wait? That was um, Jennifer Love Hewitt, Melissa Joan Hart. Was she in there, too? Yeah. Seth Green. Ethan Embry. Ethan Ethan Embry. Oh, man. Okay, I forgot about him. Um, Yeah, Seth Green. Um. Tamala Jones, I think, was in it. Man, that's a yeah, that's Shannon Elizabeth, maybe. I don't. I know, know Jerry O'Connell. Oh God, Trip McNeely, Trip McNeely. <laughs> <laughs> Who was the guy? Because Donald Faison was in it too. Because yeah. they're in the band. Yeah. Um, it's like you can't and wear Breck your own Meyer. shirt. Breck and, Breck and Meyer. Yeah, you can't wear your own shirt. Your band shirt. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, that was great. That was when teen movies were, I mean, they're still good. I'm just being an old fart. But <laughs> that movie was excellent. I might watch that tonight. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're going to leave with uh, end this episode with Don't Leave Me This Way. And uh, is it playing? Yep. There we go. All right, we'll talk to you very, very soon. Peace. Peace. Please.